0: Most servicemen and women are brave. But there is something special about holders of the Victoria Cross. They are modest men who, above all else, want to appear ordinary. But they are, of course, nothing of the sort. Many things have changed the face of warfare but the nature of human bravery and raw courage remains as impressive now as it ever was. Good evening ladies and gentlemen, how are we? This is Paul Harbottle speaking and this is the first episode of the Victoria Cross podcast. Now what we're going to try and do uh, as best to our ability is to look at the names and the lives and the actions of people who have become recipients of the Victoria Cross. Now that normally would only take about 15 minutes top. So what I thought would be different for this particular podcast is that we're going to look at both the conflicts that they're involved in and then what we'll do is we'll drill down as we go sort of thing until we get to the actual we'll look at the unit what the unit was for and where they were in the battle line so to speak or what their role was in the conflict uh, then go to the battle itself and where we look at the actual individual themselves and uh, what they actually did to uh, be awarded the Victoria Cross and then we'll play out the battle, look at the aftermath of it and then briefly look at whether or not this the soldier, how it affected his life afterwards, if we have the information for it and uh, also, unfortunately, as I'm looking through quite a few of these VC winners, in order to win the VC, it's such a, a difficult award to win. More often than not, the, the people who won the VC, or would become recipients of it I should say, they lost their lives in the claiming of that medal. There are approximately 1,370 VCs that have been awarded, although that account will change as uh, there are more conflicts which will earn that. So I won't give a a complete figure because it will keep changing. Now what I would like to do when I first looked at putting this podcast together I was I sat down and I thought about it and I thought well where do you start? You know obviously the Victoria Crosses were first introduced in response, I guess, to the Crimean War and there was many hardships coming out of the Crimean War. It's, it's, so I was kicking around the ideas of going to the very first person who had won a VC and I spoke to my uh, long-time friend and instructor officer Uh, when I was first in the Army many, many years ago, and he was my uh, instructing sergeant. He's since uh, gone on to bigger and better things outside of the Army. And um, his name is, I don't think he would mind me mentioning his name, but he's Warrant Officer Tim O'Connor. And I spoke to him and I said, look, Tim, this is the idea I've gotten, what do you think? Do you know anybody who's, you know, um, would have a VC story? And he said, well, as a matter of fact, well, I do. It, and it came to light that his great-great-uncle was in fact Luke O'Connor, Victoria Cross. Now, what can I say? Luke O'Connor was the very first enlisted soldier who was awarded the Victoria Cross, and he was awarded the Victoria Cross for actions that he carried out on the 20th of September in 1854. So I thought, well, I guess that's the perfect place to start, really. And uh, so, yeah, look, I sat down with this uh, Luke O'Connor and I read into his history and everything like that. And All I can say, Tim, is you've got quite the story there. So, without further ado, let's get stuck into it, shall we? Here we go. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to refer to him as Luke O'Connor VC. I'll just simply refer to him as Sergeant O'Connor for the simple fact of the matter that that was his rank when he was awarded the first uh, VC. Uh, And... He later goes on to become knighted and, and commissioned and, and rises up through the ranks, but that's a story for later. But at, at the start, uh, Luke O'Connor was born in 1831 and he was born in a small town called Kilcroy in Hill Street near Alphambount in Ireland. Now, he was born to James O'Connor and his wife Mary The family were of course, well it was Ireland, so they were very poor and the O'Connor's were evicted from their family farm for non-payment of rent like many others and it was about a decade before the great potato famine. So the family went to North America in 1839 and Luke was about eight sadly when tragedy struck where his father had died at sea on the voyage, and his mother and baby brother both died of cholera shortly after arriving at Grouse Island, Quebec. Luke then returned to Ireland, though some of his siblings also remained. Now, on the return to Ireland, Luke lived with his family in Boyle, where he hoped to become a grocer by trade with his uncle. Now, at the age of 17, he became a boots and porter boy at the local hotel where I assume he collected people's boots, cleaned them and had them ready for the next morning when they came down for breakfast or, or what have you and just a general rouse about. He was rather upset by the move and he wished to remain in the grocery trade and well the story is that he gained revenge by turning on all the barrel taps and absconding from the hotel. So. From there to escape uh, the wrath of the hotelery uh, owner, I would imagine, he uh, took off over to London in England and got together with another uncle who had served in the medical corps under Sir Lacey Darcy Evans in the Peninsular War, which was the Napoleonic Wars uh, where the French had invaded Spain and Portugal and the British had been sent down there to fight and repel the French. Uh, he decided to join the army, I imagine at the, the behest of his uncle, and in 1847, and enlisted in the 17th Lancers, but with the assistance of his uncle, who was an ex-surgeon in the army, he enlisted instead with the Royal Welsh Fusiliers of the 23rd Battalion. He was quickly recognised as a good soldier and rose to the rank of a colour sergeant in 1850. With his regiment, he was posted to the Crimea, where they landed on the 14th of September in 1854. Just six days later, Luke O'Connor would be involved in the Battle of Alma, only six days, where he would be distinguishing himself uh, and awarded the Victoria Cross. Okay, now let's talk about the Crimea war for a few minutes. The Crimea War lasted from 1853 to 1856, and it stemmed from Russia's threat to multiple European interests uh, and its pressure on Turkey. Now, Russia had always uh, had covetous eyes on the Crimean Peninsula, and you just need to have a look at uh, what's happening there at the moment with Russia and the Crimea. It's the only warm water harbor that they are able to uh, use. Whereas most of their, their other harbours are all up north in the Baltic and, and just under Arctic Circle sort of thing. So it's an extremely important strategic area for them and has been for a very long time. But essentially the Crimean War was a result of Russian pressure on Turkey uh, and this threatened the British commercial and strategic interest in the uh, Middle East and India and with France as well. Now, having provoked the crisis for prestige purposes, the the French used the war to cement an alliance with Britain and uh, to reassert its military power. Now, the last time the French and the British were in a war, they were at war with one another. So, you know, this is only going back 40 odd years I think um, from memory Waterloo was the last one and that was in 1815 so Anglo-French forces secured Istanbul before they started attacking Russia and they attacked them in the Black Sea the Baltic the Arctic and the Pacific uh, around Vladivostok Uh, and what they were essentially trying to do was create a military blockade around Russia now a quick scan to the map, we will show you, it's massive. But it's not as difficult as what you'd think because they just don't have a lot of ports. And this is part of the problem for them. And so this is why they all ended up going loggerheads with one another over Crimea. Now in September 1854, the Allies landed in Crimea and they uh, were going to knock out Sevastopol and the Russian fleet uh, which was harbouring there at the time so if they could knock out Sevastopol then the war would essentially be over and Russia would be out of the war so that was the plan so the British and the French landed just north of the Elmer river and they started to proceed south towards Sevastopol which was Right down on the on the rump of the peninsula, and um, commanding the Russian forces was Prince. I'm going to get this wrong. Alexander Meninchkov. The Russians had occupied a, a position on the heights over the Elma River because they realised that that would be the best place to defend before it came down to a siege at Sebastopol, and it would give them a bit of time. So they spread themselves out along the ridgeline that was just south of the Elmer River. And thus they could block the road to Sevastopol. Now, the Allied French and British army was about 60,000 troops and the Russians had only about 37,000. So the British and the French had a clear clear, uh, advantage uh, numerically. But uh, the Russians were sitting on some pretty good ground, has to be said. It was... uh, I, look, I did a little bit of a Google Google map of it and went and had a bit of a sticky beak. And it's not hard to find the Elma River on Google Earth. And if you just go and have a look, it's not incredibly hilly terrain along there. It, it only stretches, it's about five or six kilometers from the coastline sort of thing. So just run it along there and you'll start seeing there's a village there and you just stretch along and you'll be able to find the ground without too much trouble. And if you have a quick look at it, it rises probably about about 150 metres off the plane, I dare say. So it's a bit of a climb, and it's a bit steep right at the front of it, but by and large, it's not incredibly difficult terrain, It's but it is difficult terrain. So that's the battlefield. Now, the main features were telegraph hilt, and Corrigan Air Hill or Corrigan Hill. Now on both of these hills the Russians had placed uh, artillery redoubts and they had supporting infantry on either flank and it did not look like they had any cavalry to speak of. The main reason the Russians were trying to stop the British was that Sevastopol essentially its defences were quite badly uh, organised at this stage of the game. They'd been caught on the hop and so they were madly running around trying to put in defences and this is the force that was going to stop them. It was a very significant force and it was good ground that they were sitting on. So here goes. Now, Prince Menekosch leadership. Uh, from what I can see, it's it's comes under attack as, and it's being criticised as being uninspired and lacking in vigour. Uh, essentially, the emplacements in which the redoubts were formed were that they were, were little more than little small berms that were dug up there just so that they could stop the artillery from rolling forward down the hill sort of thing. So they weren't particularly difficult. I suppose they were just relying on the actual natural advantages of the terrain itself. So... At least they didn't have to deal with like massive trenches, the British and the French, that is, uh, with stakes and all sorts of um, rigmarole like that, which would slow down any advance because it was going to be tough enough as it was. Now, just before we get the battle rolling, uh, I wanted to just quickly talk about uh, the weapons that the two different sides were using because this is quite significant. Uh, the British were taking the... Pattern rifle musket, uh, the Pattern 3, I think, from memory, Uh, might have been the Pattern 1, but it was either the Pattern 1 or the 3. And this had a half inch caliber, and it was a newly developed French mini ball. And the the, the mini ball, uh, a lot of American listeners would instantly recognize this as the main uh, projectile that was used in the Civil War and to devastating effect. Now, nobody had really used a mini ball at this stage of the game, but before the miniball, they'd been trying to work out how to make the basic ball musket ball be able to spin and consequently be able to move in a straight line with more accuracy. Now, with rifling, they were using rifling, and when they first started using rifling on these muskets, and turn them into rifles. Uh, Quite often it was like thought, it wasn't so much to get accuracy or or long distance. Right at the very start, what it was, was they were trying to keep down the amount of fouling that was going on. Uh, So the fouling would go into the grooves and they found that they found that the grooves also gave additional spin and greater accuracy. So they immediately could see the potential of this and the biggest problem with rifle bullets was they were very hard to load now with a smooth ball mascot, you simply pop the um, the round and it just simply dropped to the bottom and there was very small amount of clearance sort of thing it was very quick and very easy to load and the, and the British used it uh, it's to great effect for the most part except in the Napoleonic times they started using uh, Famously, the Baker Rifle. I think the 95th uh, Battalion were uh, riflemen and they were used as light troops. Now, this is the first war that both the French and the English had rifle muskets for all of their troops or the vast majority of their troops. So they were all equipped with mini balls. Now, the miniball does devastating wounds when it hits. Uh, a, a normal musket ball hasn't got the same muzzle velocity for a start it doesn't have the same kinetic energy because it's not as heavy and what happens is it tends to lose speed fairly quickly through the air and so all that kinetic force is like dissipated as it's spinning and tumbling through the air but with a mini ball it's not actually a ball it's it's think of it like a a pistol round um when you think of a bullet, it's shaped exactly like you would imagine a bullet, and at the back of the bullet, it's like carved in slightly. So, what the idea of it is, is the explosion of the gases fills up the cavity at the base of the round and it expands out the weakened lower sides, and they grip onto the side of the inside of the rifle and it starts spinning the ball. And you know, with a smooth ball musket. They could only shoot up to 70, 80 metres or yards uh, before it loses accuracy. That was essentially the range of them. Uh, All of a sudden, these mini balls were uh, happily able to shoot with alarming accuracy up to 300 metres and they had a killing range of up to nearly a kilometre. There was a, a story that when they first started using these mini balls, they took them out on a firing range and they started shooting at these targets. And they looked over way over in the distance and they saw all these dead cows that were behind the targets and they realised they realised what massive range these things had and these poor old cows got massacred. But I digress. So the Russians essentially were still using ball muskets and whatever ammunition they could get because in all of Russia they only had three manufacturing points so... As usual, the Russians were playing catch-up, and um, like it might work in World War Two, but unfortunately, they didn't have the time in in this, and they could never really put the men on the ground if they wanted to because they had an enormous fighting force, but they were unable to essentially move them around uh, due to the the massive lack of infrastructure inside the Russian Empire. Now let's look out at the layout of the Battle of Elma and uh, the various different units that would have a decisive role in, in that conflict. Now, as Raglan's troops moved further south, they threatened Sevastopol. Uh, they came to the River of Elma, and there was the um, fairly steep gradient uh, arrayed in front of them. On the gradient, as I said earlier, we've got the the Russian troops with two main redoubts, one on um, Kurgane and the other on Telegraph Hill. Now, Telegraph Hill is close to the coast, and along the coast, the French were given the position they would come up on the on the coastal side. Now, I've included, uh, and I'll put it in the Facebook page and when I invariably get the web website up and going I'll put all my notes and references and everything that I've got all of it included for each episode and we can lay it all out but there's a, quite a good map and it was quite useful in that it allowed me to try and work out exactly what happened because as I said earlier when I was sitting there reading various different accounts, it was a very conflicted, you know, one person would say this and and the, the light division would charge up and another said, no, they retreated back down. And and I think what's actually happened is all of the above. Um, now, the French didn't really have very much to do with that. They made contact on on the right of the axis of advance with the Russians, but I don't know if they... They were already up in the hill, so... Uh, I imagine that they would have just been sitting there happily picking people off at far greater distances than the, than the Russians could do to them. Plus also they were supported more closely by um, the Royal Navy artillery in the Black Sea. So the the Russians really couldn't put much, much pressure on, on the French. But it was left to the British to make the main assault up to the Great Redoubt. That was on Corgain Hill. So let's just essentially concentrate on them. The light division was uh, the first line of assault. And in that, you've got the 19th, 23rd, the 33rd, and the 7th, and the 95th. Now, it's unusual to have... a, A division's normally got three... Uh, but they had two extra uh, regiments that were added to them for the actual assault. And on the left hand side uh, of the axis of assault there was also the 17th and the 88th regiment. They were not directly involved in the main assault on the hill, they were kind of giving covering fire. Directly behind them, probably about three to four hundred metres behind them, was the 1st Division and they were spread out straight line and they are on the other side of the hill so that they were yet to come up and behind them of course artillery which was to give support. The Light Division was led by Sir George Brown and Lacey Evans who commanded the 2nd Division was on the right of them. Behind them on the 2nd line was the 1st Division under the Duke of Cambridge Uh, consisting of the Highland and Guards Brigades. The British infantry advanced to the river and began to cross, finding the water to be fordable at almost every point. Uh, It's not clear whether or not this fact had been discovered before the battle. I don't know how much trouble they went to to reconnoitring the battleground. Uh, The Light Division had not extended itself far enough to the left and so consequently uh, when it advanced, it advanced at an angle. Now, soon the troops were on the right of the light division and on the left of the second division, and they all began to, began to start uh and merging together. Now, the strategic formation of the British lines at that point was lost, and it became just one big confused muddle. As you can imagine, you just got lines of regiments just like jostling up against one another. Uh, Once they crossed the river, and all order was completely lost by that stage of the game. Companies and regiments became jumbled together, and when the lines had become, that were two man deep, just ended up just being one massive crowd. The Russians seeing this began to advance down the hill, thinking, wacko, we've got them, and from either side of the Great Redoubt. So just think of the Great Redoubt is coming out uh, like a bit of a spur line sort of thing, um, an adjunct to the side of the hill. And down on both sides of it, there's two big, large, shallow re-entrants. And the Russians would pinch it down on either side of them and they were going to hit the the light brigade on the left-hand side of it and they would hit the second division on the right sort of thing. All the while they were firing on the British troops. The far side of the river comprised of a steep six-foot bank, so which caused a halt in the advance, partly because it was in a physical obstruction, and partly because it provided the troops with cover from the bombardment and the fire from the Russians. At this point, some of the troops sat down, took out water cans, others began to eat, and generally they were... Not behaving in a particularly professional manner, you know. Considering there was like they're in the middle of a battle, the divisional commander Sir George Brown rode up the bank, up and down, and urged his soldiers to uh, follow on. And the division then surged out of the river and scaled the hill, heading back up. The ground on the hillside was terraced and walled, making it difficult for the regiments to form. Um, So it it was steps as as they were going up, it, it kept getting into broken ground and it kept breaking up the lines. The British uh, troops attacked up the hill in some disorder. Now, the regiments reached the Russian batteries uh, to find that the guns had been hastily limbered up and prepared to be moved away and were being removed at the time, uh, which is lucky for the British, otherwise if the, if the Russians had stood their ground, It was the view of General Hamerley, who served as the artillery officer at Crimea, that the precipitous retreat of those guns saved the British uh, from suffering appalling losses in the final stages of the assault. From the discharges of case shot came to hand at the time, but preferably ball bearings and round musket, and, and it just tore huge holes in light infantry. It was at this point of the battle a young lieutenant, Anne Struther, was carrying the 23rds regimental colours. Now, suddenly he was hit uh, and killed and without hesitation, Sergeant Luke O'Connor himself wounded already in the chest, grabbed up the colours and raced to the head of the regiment uh, up the hill and forced his way and encouraging fellow troops uh, as they were climbing to the top in the force of an enormous amount of fire where he made it to the top and planted the colours at the top of the redoubt which is quite extraordinary you can just imagine um, as he's clambering up over what was really very very broken ground he had um, a chest wound already not from a mini ball but from a, a normal musket ball and oh, it just it beggars to believe how people can actually do these sorts of things sometimes you, you see battle reports where people don't really realise whether or not they've been hit or they just feel like they've been punched in the shoulder or punched in the chest or something like that and the adrenaline pushes them forward and I can only imagine this must have been uh, there must have been some of this working because I imagine if you're, you're getting hit in the chest with a basketball. It'd drop you. <laughs> I could see myself doing it anyway. Luke O'Connor, Sergeant of the 23rd Regiment of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, was one of the centre sergeants at the Battle of Elmer, and advanced between the officers carrying the colours. When neither a doubt, Lieutenant Anstruther, who was carrying a colour, was mortally wounded and he was shot in the breast at the same time and fell. But recovering himself, snatched up the colour from the ground and continued to carry the colours to the end of the section, although urged by Captain Grainville to relinquish it. And go to the rear on account of his wounds. He was recommended for and received his commission for his services at Elmer. Also behaved with great gallantry at the assault of the Redan on the 8th of September 1855 where he was shot through both thighs. I'll just say that again. He was shot through both thighs and continued to clamber up what was a very steep uh, hill and uh, apparently, again, acted with enormous gallantry. So that's the actions that uh, brought him his Victoria Cross and we'll just wrap up uh, how the battle played out. But essentially what happened was once they'd made it on, onto the Great Redoubt, the, the First Division... Which had coalesced around the remnants of the Light Division, and they searched for, it and they pushed the, the Russians off the entire feature. Now, after they organised themselves and they made they made camp uh, just past the battlefield, and Raglan was interested in pressing forward to pursue the Russians and had they done so with any alacrity they would have been able to cut the war very much uh, shorter than how it played out because just remember as I said before there weren't any particular preparations that had been done at Sevastopol for the siege so they would have been able to take it without too much difficulty and that was suggested by many people who were there on the ground at the time. So a bit of an oversight by Raglan um, but considering that he was also in charge of the charge of the Light Brigade, um, this one's not going to make the top ten if you know what I mean. So yes because. You know, it's very difficult. There's a lot of things happening in a, in a battle sort of thing, but he seems to have a, a bit of a knack for making serious blunders and oversights. I, in this particular case with Alma, not only did he let the enemy get away and consequently prolong the war, uh, which is soldiery 101, as far as I think most people would consider, he was more concerned with um, attaining good order and perhaps after watching the assault itself um, semi-collapse, he was more concerned about order and morale. Now, he was himself, uh, I feel, he contributed significantly to that collapse because what he had done, he'd done the first mistake of, of any good commander is that he had taken himself to a position where he could observe the, the fighting. He actually went up around the back of Telegraph Hill where he was actually looking down from behind the Russian lines and there was no way he was able to get any kind of communications back down to the troops. So he'd written out the orders, set them into motion and away he went just so he could watch his handiwork. So fortunately there were quite a good um, divisional commanders and they they pretty well fought the battle on their own it wasn't a difficult battle strategically to win all you had to do was go up the hill and fight but he was even asked by his uh, commander of the cavalry who asked him vehemently to pursue the enemy and um, I would have but he, he told them, no, you are to remain with the army. So I think order was uh, the the first point for, for him and uh, they would take their sweet time about fighting this war. And I guess in his mind he thought it could would have been a, a longer... Like they went to all the trouble of getting ships and troops and everything like that and to suddenly have the war be up and over in you know, less than two weeks. It was not, not the thing to do, I don't think. So, yes, better to do this with some sort of order. Perhaps I'm being harsh, I do <laughs> I scratch my head over it sometimes, people. Uh, but anyway, all right. OK, so what happened to uh, Sergeant Luke O'Connor after the battle? Well, he was told that he was going to be recommended for a commission... And he was appointed ensign whilst uh, he had been sent to the hospital to recover from his wounds. And he survived both the battle and the Crimean Hospital, which uh, in those days was no small mean feat in its own right, uh, considering what was going on and what was serving for hospitals in those days. So... Yes, he was appointed an ensign and he was then given the the honour of the Victoria Cross on the 24th of February 1857. Now, just remember when he first did this, there was no such thing as the Victoria Cross. It was something that was invented later after the end of the war and um, he was put up for it then. Now, he also, on the 8th of September in 1855, uh, fought with great gallantry, as I earlier mentioned, at the Redan, uh, which is quite a famous British victory. And he was wounded in both thighs. I <laughs> How he can you even walk, I don't know. But anyway, he did, and he did it bravely. So. That's, that's his efforts for the Crimean War. He was of 62 men who uh, was there for the first investiture. He was to return to service after his wounds at the Redan, so he, again he was wounded, and was promoted to lieutenant and was present at the siege and the fall of Sevastopol. Now, after that, he was en route for China when the Indian Mutiny broke out and he was rerouted. He saw service under the command of Sir Colin Campbell, uh, the very famous Sir Colin Campbell, who was in charge of the Highlanders at the second relief of Lucknow. He was present at the defeat of Gualia. That's the only way I know how to spell it. contingent at Cornpore at the siege and the fall of Lucknow and the operations against Coombe Tree. He was appointed captain in August of 1858 and received the Indian Mutiny Medal. Now, after some uneventful years, and I imagine he was probably fairly happy about that, at the end of 1873 he took part in Sir Garnet Wolseley's expedition to Kamasai, which was essentially later known as the Third Anglo Ashanti War and uh, it was just in a small area uh, near Ghana, modern-day Ghana today in Western Africa. It was essentially a a small area where uh, colonial Britain was exerting its power and maintaining its holdings there in Western Africa. In June 1884, he was given command of the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, and in 1886, he was promoted to the rank of Colonel. He retired from the army on the 2nd of March, 1887, with the rank of Major General. He was then created a Companion of the Bath in 1900, and was knighted in 1913, and in 1914, he was made Honorary Colonel of his old regiment, the Royal Welsh It's a testament to his character that he was the only soldier in the history of the British Army to have passed from private to its highest rank. No other soldier has achieved that. O'Connor then fell ill, and having been seriously ill for some time, he died in London on the 1st of February, 1915, aged 84. He was buried at St Mary's Roman Catholic Cemetery, Kensal Green. again i've what i've done is i've put on a map of where you can actually go and um have a look at his grave if you're in that area um myself as you can hear from my accent i'm in australia so that's not going to happen anytime soon however one day i hope to go over to england and europe and all through there and it'll be lovely and i will put this on one of the places to go, because I think this man was an extremely interesting person. He certainly, he certainly lived the life. And considering from where he came from, um, you know, being born born Irish is a handicap, right there. You know, certainly in the 19th century, where almost everybody was poor and despised, and he was able through vigor and valor and and constitution. Because he would have had to have had that um, to simply survive through those years, um, being shot twice in two years and then having to deal with the complications that came from that. I imagine he was an extraordinarily sturdy sort of uh, person. Um, now, just some side notes characters. Apparently, he was, <laughs> I'm sure, that he's something of a bit of a rogue. He was. Put on a couple of drinking charges and things like that. So, a bit of a, a bit of a lad uh, was our uh, Sergeant O'Connor, and I'm sure his his family and relatives should be very very proud of him. That concludes the podcast for Luke O'Connor VC, and we haven't as yet worked out exactly who's going to be our next recipient i was just trying to get through this one (laughs) get it all together so look this is not going to be a super formal kind of podcast you know think of it as like having you know having a couple of drinks around the fire and listening to some stirring tales um and i try and do it in a relatively informal sort of way um that's just my particular style so if you enjoyed it we've got a Facebook page up now so get on it come and like us and let me know what you thought you know the good and the bad I've got a broad shoulders so I can take criticism but just please remember that I am aiming for a particular style of podcast and um, I, I think that this this kind of the information in this has a tendency of, of um, ha- having a little bit too much pomp sort of thing. I mean, these men were men and as the title uh, shows they just tried to be normal people and I-, I think if we can remember them as normal people it just makes it more extraordinary as to what they were able to do and perhaps there's a little part of them in all of us and that's why i love these stories so much so thank you very much for your time and listening today um do rate and review us on itunes um please 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 that would be wonderful um may take a couple of weeks for it to actually come up on itunes i know they they tend to drag the chain a little bit but uh when it does come up get on there give us a rate and review Tell everybody how much you loved it, what you thought of it. Um, be honest. If you don't like something, you know, put it down. It's okay. Uh, but just remember there are lots of people out there who I think would get a great deal of benefit for something like this and would thoroughly enjoy it. So the whole idea is to try and get the word out there and we'll get this show going. Okay. Thank you very much, everybody, for your patience and your time. And I'll